Well, welcome again to St John's, everybody. My name's Andrew. I'm the Assistant Minister here. It's great to be uh, sharing with you more about Leviticus this week, uh, because today, as Tim said, is the fourth of our series on the heart of life. And the point of our teaching this term as a congregation is to reflect together what does it mean practically uh, to put Jesus at the centre of your life, which is what Christians are called to do. So we've had the baptism of Oliver this morning, um, and his parents and sponsors were asked the most terrifying question I have ever had to ask anyone. They were asked, will you each, by God's grace, strive to live as a disciple of Christ, loving God with your whole heart and your neighbour as yourself until your life's end? How can we possibly do that? Even when we say yes, we say I will with God's help. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. You know, if you've been following along, you know, we've been looking through Leviticus and this has been a bit of an interesting journey for us because we're looking at what is hands down the most difficult, the strangest book in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. And it's so difficult a book that we had to have an entire sermon to begin the series that was purely about convincing us that we should read it um, and how we could possibly understand what it had to say as Christians to, for us, to us as Christians today. Uh, and so throughout our series we've seen Leviticus is centred on um, the tabernacle, which is the tent of worship that was the symbol of the presence of God in the centre of the ancient Israelite camp. And around the tabernacle there were all these various religious rules and rituals to teach people how they should relate to God. Uh, and these practices, which may seem strange to us when we read them, but they're actually we've begun to see that they're very helpful for us as we consider how we can put God at the centre of our lives as Christians today. So, for instance, I spoke two weeks ago about the meaning of the system of animal sacrifices that happened at the tabernacle and what it says about continually coming back to God to thank him and renew our relationship with him. And last week, Tim looked at the rules around cleanliness and purity in Leviticus, and how this was supposed to show people what does it mean to be holy. Because this idea of holiness is at the heart of Leviticus. It's a book about what does it mean to live with God, the holy God living in your midst, living in your heart. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's our desire as well. And we can learn a lot about that from Leviticus. Um, we've also seen that while it may look like Leviticus is all about rules and rituals, it's it's actually a book about relationships. So it's a book about all our relationships being healed so that we can see God working through us in all of our lives. So we believe that we can see that in Leviticus, God is addressing at least these four different kinds of relationships. So moving from what's inside us, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves and our understanding of who we are, and then outside us, our relationship with other people and the whole creation that God's made. So Leviticus sees all these areas of our lives as being connected, they're inseparable and they need to go together. And so in fact it actually sees these relationships as a channel for God to work through us in wider and wider circles as we become more and more able to show his presence to the world. So I, just want, I want to give you just a picture or illustration to understand um, what this means or how, how this works in Leviticus. So there's a small lake in New Zealand. It's called Blue Lake. That's the one down at the bottom there. And it's a notable lake because it has the most pure and fresh water uh, of any body of water anywhere in the world. Okay? So it's the purest lake that you can find. And there are three things that work together to make Blue Lake this pure. Firstly, uh, as you can see, it's fed from a lake higher above it 
through an underground tunnel that filters the water that comes in to the lake. And secondly, the lake itself is set quite high around, around the trees around it, so not much debris gets into it. And finally, this lake empties very quickly. So every 24 hours, all the water in Blue Lake is replaced. And all this together makes this lake incredibly pure and incredibly fresh. And so th this is a good picture of us and what Leviticus is telling us about our relationships. It tells us that we are designed to receive God's life flowing into us from above. That's, why, that's how he made us. Um, and so we want that relationship with God to be as pure as possible. We need to um, take steps to make that happen. It also tells us that we need to be pure in ourselves, not being contaminated so that God can work through us without these things getting messed up. And that's what Tim talked about last week. But we also know that if a lake doesn't keep emptying itself, it actually gets stagnant. Um, and so God wants for there, there to be out of us a continual flow or a constant stream of his love and his life uh, to those around us. And so that's what Leviticus also teaches us. This is what it means uh, to have these pure relationships. And so that's what we're looking at this week, our relationship with others, what flows out of us as Christians. And next week, we'll sort of, we'll sort of think about what happens right at the end uh, when this river reaches the ocean, the whole creation that God's made and where we live. So, as I said, Leviticus is a difficult book to understand. It seems very foreign to us. There are lots of weird things in here. You know, last week we looked at um, why Leviticus has instructions on cleaning mould off uh, the walls in your house and what that means. Um, so, in our series, we're trying to think, how do we understand these things and read them in a way that makes sense? Um, and we've, been, we've come up with the idea of the Jesus window. So, I'll just um, put this on here as our continuing visual reminder here. So as Christians, we look at a book like in the Old Testament like Leviticus and we don't read it as though it were addressed to us in the same straightforward way as it was to the Israelites then. Um, we read it as something that is a preparation for the coming of Jesus and which helps us to understand Jesus better and how to live as his followers when we read it. And so we find that the ideas and the practices in a book like Leviticus gain a, a different meaning, a different significance when we see it through the perspective of what Jesus taught and what he did. And so we found when you look through the Jesus window at Leviticus, uh, the things that we read there look very different from that perspective. So we read the bit about cleaning up mould off your house. Sounds weird to us, but we realised for us, if we, as we look at through Jesus, that that's about the idea of making sure we take seriously the need to deal with sin in our lives, which Jesus has allowed us to do, to be pure before God. You know, and we read all about the complicated animal sacrifices, but then we look through, look through Jesus and realise it's all about bringing our whole life to God and being thankful to him. So lots of things in Leviticus change quite a bit when they come through this window of Jesus. I think we find, though, as we get towards the end of Leviticus, we're coming to the part of the book that's a bit less strange for us. You probably found our reading today a little less strange than some of the ones we've had. We find them much easier to understand, and they don't really change as much when they come through the window of Jesus. Because, you know, the parts about in Leviticus that are about relating to other people, just more familiar to us. Um, we're more used to talking about how do we behave in our relationships than we are about how to properly slaughter a bull, for instance. Um, so these things are a bit easier. Uh, but, you know, it's Leviticus, so the weirdness doesn't really let up <laughs> all the way to the end. So there are still some things in Leviticus 19 that really don't make it through the Jesus window without being pretty much changed. Uh, for instance... Uh, in among Leviticus 19, after where we read up to, in verse 27, uh, we're faced with a particular law that strikes 
fear in the heart of hipsters everywhere. So in Leviticus 19, verse 27, it says, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Um, It's a fairly terrifying law for some of us in this age of manscaping. And we've got to say, well, what does that mean? Why does, what does God against, have against well-groomed bushranger beards and fine-looking um, male grooming? So, but if we look about what it meant at the time in Leviticus, we can see it's actually not about ritually disfiguring your body in, uh, as part of mourning for the dead, so you don't cut your beard up. Um, so it's addressing a, a, an ancient religious practice that the Israelites were supposed to avoid. I don't think that's a big temptation for most of us, if it is for you, we can talk about it later. But So we can see this doesn't really get through the Jesus window at all, really. The beard, the beard um, trimming is not a big part of Christian life, except to remind us perhaps that we need to mourn with hope and not with destructive grief, as the pagans did. But there are some bits in our readings today that come through almost completely unchanged into the teaching of Jesus. So um, let's just have a look then at what Leviticus says about relationships with others. So Tim reminded us last week about God's command to his people that shapes so many of the laws in Leviticus where he says, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. So we saw that God wants people who are in relationship with him to be like him. He wants us to be holy. And that just doesn't mean being good. It means having God's life in you, being healed and set apart for something great, um, to be God's agent in the world. And so Levitica, in Leviticus we saw that holiness was seen as always something that's being under threat. Death and impurity are coming out to take us away from holiness. People easily became unclean before God. But since the coming of Jesus, we saw now this cleanness and holiness of God is something that's going out into the world, changing unclean and unholy people like you and me into clean and holy people that can serve God. And our reading from Leviticus 19 starts again with this command, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But this time we see God's not just talking to the individuals, he's actually talking to the whole community of Israel. Each of them are supposed to be holy in themselves, but the community itself is supposed to be filled with the presence of God, to be holy and to be like him. Now, if, if you, when you, know, when you might have noticed when we read Leviticus 19, that's a bit of jumble of random laws on various topics. Um, even the people who edited the Bible in our pews were obviously a bit stumped by it because you can see that the chapter heading says various laws. Um, so when you read this, it's hard to see what, what's, what they're really talking about. But there's a theme, I think, that comes out of this reading about the kind of responsibilities that God's holy people have to each other. So I would want to summarise it in this way, that what it's saying is, If you're God's people, you need to show genuine care and concern for anyone in your network of relationships, especially those who are vulnerable or who are dependent on you, because we are all servants of the same God. And so the key here in Leviticus is that our relationships with other people are supposed to be shaped by our relationship to God. So eight times in the passage we heard today, we heard the phrase, I am the Lord your God written at the end of a law. The people are supposed to do these things because God is their Lord and we're accountable to how we live under his lordship with other people. So what we find is when it comes to these kind of laws, Leviticus speaks a lot about what we would describe as social justice or even what we might call workplace relations. And it really involves a command to treat people fairly and with care when there's an imbalance of power and wealth between us because we're God's servants. We're not just other people's masters. 
And I think, you know, those things tend to come through the Jesus window into our age pretty well. You know, most of us are not perhaps concerned with ritual purity or with um, animal sacrifice, but we are still very concerned to this day about these issues, about justice and fairness and how to treat other people today. So let's see how, how some of these things might come through, and they come through pretty readily. So there's the, verse, the law we read in verse 9 about how do you harvest your crops. So it says the Israelites, when they harvested, were not supposed to harvest their fields right to the edge. And they weren't supposed to be really efficient and neat about how they um, cut the grain, or they weren't to go back and pick up bits of grain or grapes that got left behind or they missed the first time. And because the reason is the custom at that time was then the poor, poorer people would come by after the harvest and pick up those extra bits for themselves and they would supplement um, their food. And this practice was called gleaning. And it turns up actually as a big plot point in the book of Ruth later on in the Old Testament. So the point is, if the harvester took everything in their field, they got the, all of it, there would be nothing for the poor people to take. And so what God is saying here is that when these Israelites think about their own work and their own wealth, they need to understand that God's perspective on this community is more important than their own personal individual interests. It's more important to God that people be generous than that they be super efficient in how they, um, in how they run their farms. So leaving the edges of the harvest is a sign for them, that God is both the Lord of wealthy people and poor people, and they have a responsibility to each other. And I think this is something that we still struggle with today when we think about how we uh, deal with these sorts of issues. You know, for us, it's not usually about grain or vine harvests, unless we're farmers. It's usually about money. How, you know, the question is, how do we build into our lives the reality that God wants his people to be generous? What do we leave aside for others? How do we decide to give away things to people in need. Um, and I think that's something that Australians are not very good at. Um, I think we are a very efficient people, very productive and very wealthy because we have taken that care. And so when we make money, you know, we want to make sure we get it all. And when it comes to, and, you know, when it comes to spending that money on ourselves, easy, I'll do it. I'll even go into debt to do it. But when it comes to charity, when it comes to foreign aid, giving our money away, we tend to count every penny, don't we? and often begrudge it. Um, you know, it says in Leviticus, give money to poor people and foreigners. You know, I don't think that, if, if a politician wants to get elected in our country, that's not a great strategy, or a great thing to say, is it? Um, but Leviticus is challenging this attitude. And when we pass this through the Jesus window, we find that Jesus took up this principle and made it even more radical than it was in that day. So we ended our reading today with um, chapter 19, verse 18 where it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you may recognise something in that sentence because that is something that gets through the Jesus window completely unchanged. Um, someone once asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment in God's law? And what he said was, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he said love your neighbour as yourself. That's exactly what Leviticus says. But if we look in Leviticus, we realise that what they had in mind in those laws was a bit more, was a bit limited. It was your, your literal neighbour, the people that live near you, your family, your village, your tribe, your actual neighbour. 
And that's why when Jesus talked about this, he used the parable of the Good Samaritan, which most of us have heard. You know, someone asked him, who is my neighbour? Who do I really have to give to? Because you know, we want to keep the definition tight. I want it to be just my family or people close to me or people that I feel a connection with. Um, and we love to argue about the boundary of our responsibilities. But Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan that there is literally really no distinction made in God's eyes about who is our neighbour and who isn't based on ethnic, social or religious categories. Um, everyone is our neighbour because we're all God's children. And, and since Jesus then has shown us that everyone is our neighbour, it means if we're his followers, we then have a responsibility for the needs of everyone around the world, for generosity and justice out of what God's given us. Um, so for Christians, you know, giving to the, serving the poor and the needy, not cutting right to the edge of our field, that's part of our faith. That's one of the commands of God that Jesus held on to. And if we cut that sort of thing out, then our relationship with God and with ourselves aren't going to be what they're supposed to be. Our lake becomes stagnant. The love of God doesn't flow out of us. The water of love gets trapped in us and goes bad. Um, and so Leviticus cares about this, and it also cares about how we relate to those, not just who are poorer than us, but those who have less power than we do. So in verse 13 it says, Don't defraud or rob your neighbour, and do not hold back the, work, the wages of a hired worker overnight. This is saying to the employers and the, and the, there that they should pay people their wages fairly and on time, despite the um, temptation to fiddle things a bit or to do otherwise. Um, because labourers at the time were usually paid at the end of the day. And so if you held back their wages, then the worker might not have enough money to buy food for their family that day. They would rely on it. They were vulnerable. And so that's what that law, that law is trying to stop that practice. And in verse 15 it says, you to be judged fairly and without partiality. Don't favour rich people over poor people when you come to court. So what he's saying is how we treat people who work for us, who are under our authority, people who depend on us and need our care, speaks about whether we really think that God is our Lord or not. And this is, again, something that comes through into our own time very easily. Um, for instance, you know, we are having a big conversation at the moment, aren't we, about how do we calculate and pay wages uh, to hospitality workers? How do we calculate penalty rates and do that kind of, um, and, how, and do that in a fair way? And whatever the best outcome of that issue is, I'm not an economist, I don't know what's the best, but um, Leviticus would remind us in those kinds of conversations that for God, justice is actually ahead of productivity and vulnerable people need to be protected if we're going to call ourselves the people of God, if we're going to actually be, do what he says. And so Leviticus says our relationships with each other need to be transformed by the fact that God is living with us and in us and so our kind of community needs to be the kind of place where God is willing to live, the kind of place where people recognise he's their Lord. We can't separate... I've got my relationship from God, I'm going to separate that off from my relationship with other people. We can't, that can't be done. They're always together, as Jesus said there. And so there's a big idea that makes this clear in Leviticus, and it's the idea of the Jubilee, and we find that in chapter 25 of Leviticus. And so the basic idea of the Jubilee was that every 50 years, the people of Israel were essentially supposed to push a big reset button on their social and economic relationships. And they were supposed to put back everything the way it was when God had set them up in the land and they started to live there. And so in practice, what that meant is there was supposed to be a systematic cancellation of all the debts and all the obligations that anyone had built up among the people at that time, 
all their loans and everything that they had uh, uh, lent each other. So it says, if your family you know, got into some financial trouble, you had to sell some land, um, in the Jubilee year, it was supposed to be returned to your family free of charge. So, in fact, it wasn't possible to buy land in Israel under this law. You were only renting it until the Jubilee. And if someone lost a lot of money, or they owed someone too much, and they had to go and leave their land and go and work for them to work off the debt, then, come the Jubilee, they were supposed to be set free of that debt and sent home to be returned to their land again. You know, so this is a process every 50 years, and at any point, people were able to be redeemed by their family by paying of the debt. But there was always supposed to be a final fail-safe here, a jubilee that would redeem everyone and turn things back to the way in the community that they should be. And so the chapter on the jubilee, chapter 25, finishes by saying, even if someone isn't redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of the jubilee for the... For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says he is the Lord and he places our relationships ahead of our economic productivity and growth. He cares more about people than the economic systems that they live in. And that means that he says, I'm going to put it into place that rich people can't keep getting richer forever at the expense of those who aren't. Um, and this has again been something that's been in our mind in recent years. It's come through. We've been reflecting on our global financial scene. You know, how is it possible for poor countries to rise out of the debt that they've been placed under? Um, there was a big movement around the turn of the millennium called Jubilee 2000. And lots of Christians and other leaders were lobbying to have third world debt cancelled in this way, to start again and to set things back to the way they were. So that's the Jubilee, and that's sort of the, one of the, the huge key idea about relationships in Leviticus. Now, in Leviticus, the Jubilee is supposed to be a symbol and witness to the world around Israel about what it meant to have the true God living at the centre of your life. However, the problem with this is, is that, we, unfortunately, we have no real evidence that the Jubilee was ever kept in the way that it's described in Leviticus. Um, historians believe that the Israelites never actually kept the Jubilee, they never did all this dramatic forgiveness of debt and restoration that the law of Leviticus said that they had to do. And the failure to do that, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, is at the heart of what a lot of the prophets would say when they criticised Israelite society. They hadn't done the things that God had told them to do. And so injustice and oppression became entrenched in God's people and God had enough of it and, and, and withdrew himself from their midst. So, when it comes to the Jubilee, I just would need to ask, what's the problem? Why didn't people keep the Jubilee? It was so clear what they had to do. I think, it's, I think we can see, though, even as we read Leviticus, that the problem was about their hearts. It was a problem about love. Because the laws of Leviticus are not just about what we do to other people, but they're about our attitude to others as well. And so the heart of the teaching of Leviticus about our relationships with each other is that they need to be based on a genuine love and concern Love your neighbour as you love yourself. There is a love relationship. And so the problem is people wanted to keep the Jubilee but they found that they didn't care enough about their neighbour to do it. They had never been truly changed. It wasn't that whether it's economically feasible to do it. It's that they didn't care. They never really understood. They never lived out their relationship with God and their need for personal holiness as Leviticus taught them to. They never really got to the heart of their life presence of God. So they were religious perhaps, but they were not holy. 
And so there was nothing in them to move them away from self-interest and let them keep the jubilee. And that's a problem for us too. You know, I think we do separate off very often how we behave to other people from how we feel in ourselves or how we relate to God. Um, C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, wrote Narnia Stories, had a great illustration of this problem. He said, humanity is sort of like a fleet of ships on the ocean um, on a big journey. And he says, this, this voyage of this fleet is only going to be successful if all these ships are able to sail in formation, you know, if they don't crash into each other and sink each other. But, he said, they'll, they'll only be able to avoid crashing into each other and sinking if they're all in good order, their engines, their, their sails, and they can control themselves and go the way they want to. And so what he's saying is, if we want our outer life to be right, if we want our relationships with each other to be healthy, our inner life needs to be right as well. We need to be right in ourselves. That's why we're saying our relationships with others are built on our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to God, because he says this fleet needs to know where it's going. It needs to know its destination. So we need to know our relationship with God as well. Where are we headed so we can go in the same direction? So we don't do this, we crash. We make, and, and we don't get where we need to go. And this is a problem then, you know, because I think most of us, or everyone wants their relationships to be healthy, don't we? We all want our society to be a fair place. We want it to be a just place. We want people to respect each other. We want to help people who are having a tough time. You know, we want our politicians to be people of integrity and we get very upset when they're not. We want our families to be peaceful and joyful places to be. We want this sort of jubilee, we want this restoration. But if we just focus on our outer behaviour, it's not going to get us there, Leviticus says. Our hearts towards each other need to change. You may have heard this quote before, um, hell is other people. Hell is other people. Um, it's the famous final line in a play from the uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And in this play, he wrote, he said, there are three recently dead people. They find themselves in hell. And it turns out it's a nicely furnished living room. So not quite what you'd expect. Um, there are none of the instruments of torture that they expect or punishment in hell. All that there is, is them. Uh, but they gradually, across the course of the play, come to discover that the torment of hell comes not from being physically punished or tortured, but from spending forever in the presence of other people who mercilessly point out your flaws and mistakes. Um, so each of them makes hell the place hell for the others by their refusal to actually care for each other. And so they, instead they tear each other down and they live in this hatred and distrust of each other. So hell is other people, he says. This is a picture. He says, hell is the incessant experience of being judged, accused, manipulated by other people. And I think whatever else is true of hell, he was really onto something there, because this is a picture of what breakdown in a community looks like, a community where everyone is dedicated to the destruction of everyone else, where no one ever sees us as what we could be, but only the worst parts of who we are, and they insist this is all you're ever going to be, and I'm going to treat you as though you're not my neighbour. Um, there are probably quite a few people here who know this kind of hell um, all too well. So hell may be perhaps your annual family Christmas lunch. Uh, <laughs> maybe the social group you're in at school or it may be your office, maybe in your church. Um, hell is a community where the heart of the laws of Leviticus are not being honoured. So people don't care for each other. And that's the kind of place where systematic injustice and oppression of the poor, the weak and the vulnerable will continually grow up over us like a hard shell. 
because we don't care for each other. And so this, problem, this is a problem that needs to be solved and this is where Jesus um, has come to help us because we see as Christians that the jubilee needs to come through the window as well. As wonderful as the concept of the jubilee was, it was limited. It was about it was putting aside financial debt between Israelites, letting people start again. But what Jesus taught was that we need something more than that. He was, and he said that through, through him, God was, is actually bringing in a kind of universal jubilee for the whole human race. God is forgiving all our debts, all our failures, all our mistakes. He's forgiving us everything and he is restoring the world to the way that it should be. And this, he says, is going to be the reality of what the jubilee was only a shadow or a picture. And, that, and so when Jesus first came into public, this is what he said in his very first sermon. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The year of the Lord's favour is the jubilee. And Jesus is saying, this, whatever that was about, I am making it true in a far deeper way. So when we read... Leviticus, as Christians, we can see that our relationship with others and this jubilee that Jesus is bringing in is an integral part of what it means for us to follow Jesus and, and be part of what he's doing. So our relationships with other people and our communities need to be transformed by God's forgiveness and his love and it needs to come in our, out of our hearts and we need to be really changed ourselves. And that, this includes the relationships in our local church as well. And I think this is why forgiveness is absolutely essential between Christian people because there are debts that build up between us. You know, someone does, says something I don't like, someone snubs me or, does some, you know, or misunderstands me or hurts me or um, betrays me and we build up these debts between each other and it makes the community a place where God is, can't be seen. That's how hell is built. And so as Christians, we need to give each other a jubilee on the debts that we think people owe us, you know. And not just every 50 years, but every week, every day, as often as it's needed. All these grudges and slander, gossip, backstabbing, that it needs to go, it needs to be cancelled so that God can work through us. And it, so the point of the church is that we're supposed to be able to say that for us, heaven is other people. Heaven is other people. People who care for each other, build each other up and show the world what God has planned. Heaven is a place of restored relationships. And that's what we get a taste of now when we invite Jesus into our hearts and into our relationships. So this is what Leviticus is calling us to today. So I'd like to, I'd like to pray as we think about this. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a time where we can just now, I'll, I'll say a prayer, then we'll have a, a moment of quiet just to reflect on our own relationships. Um, where is there in us that is a bit of bit of hell that needs to be repented of and put aside and set free. And then we're going to watch a, a, quick, uh, watch a quick video um, which has a prayer uh, for Lent. Um, because to now, now is the season of Lent, which is a season of preparation for Easter. And the, the way we prepare for Easter as Christians is by bringing ourselves back to God and asking him to change us, um, to get rid of our sin and to change our hearts. So I'm going to pray. We'll have a, have a moment's quiet and then we'll watch a, a prayer for Lent to reflect on now. Lord, we pray as we come to you today that you would be living in our hearts, that we would return to you, that you would make us holy people as you are holy. And Lord, today we reflect on our relationships, 
those in our family, our friends, our church and our community, and even around the world, uh, who we have failed to act as though they are our neighbours, as Jesus taught us. And we know this has caused immense pain um, in our lives and in the lives of people we know. So we pray, Lord, now as we come to silence that you would show us where we need to change and give us uh, a new awareness and understanding of your grace.